You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. The incumbent technologies have lots of advantages that have to do with the inertia and the path dependency that exists in the energy system. In an ideal world, we would be regulating these things out of existence, but we don't live in an ideal world. For August 31st, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Today, we're pleased to offer one of our occasional Lanyap episodes. Longtime listeners will recall that we promise our paying subscribers two shows a month, or 24 shows a year. But we actually produce a show every two weeks, which makes 26 shows a year. We call the two extra shows our Lanyap. That's what they call a little something extra in New Orleans, sort of like the extra roll in a baker's dozen. We usually put them in front of the paywall so that subscribers and non-subscribers alike can enjoy our full shows once in a while. But looking back over our catalog, I see that the last show we put in front of the paywall was actually episode 151 in July 2021. So it's about time we did another one. In today's show, we welcome energy expert Dr. Sarah Hastings-Simon to the show. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy and School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada, where she directs the Masters of Sustainable Energy Development Program. She's an expert in energy, innovation, and climate policy, and her work is focused on understanding how energy and industrial transitions happen within different sectors of the economy and how policy responses can improve outcomes. She is also the co-host of the Energy Versus Climate podcast, which we'll be sharing this episode with their audience as well. So a big welcome to those listeners. Sarah will share with us her perspectives on the energy transition in Canada, with particular focus on her home province, Alberta, which is the seat of the Canadian oil and gas industry, as well as a major coal producer. We'll talk about the challenges and opportunities the province faces in the energy transition. We'll review the recent history of various efforts to build pipelines and LNG facilities to export more Canadian oil and gas. We'll consider the outlook for exports of hydropower. We'll check in on Canada's coal phase-out. We'll discuss the potential for more renewables, including geothermal. And we'll get Sarah's perspective on how Canada's carbon tax regime has played out. Then in the news segment, we'll look at the progress of renewable power procurement in Alberta. We'll see how Alberta is helping customers struggling to pay their utility bills. We'll check out the latest statistics on renewable generation worldwide. We'll note a series of interventions in California designed to keep its grid reliable in the face of numerous challenges. And we'll take a peek at a new type of ocean current turbine. But before we go to the interview... Announcements, announcements, announcements. Having now completed my first year of living as a digital nomad, or as I like to call it, a peripatetic podcaster, in North America, I'm finally ready to take this show abroad. From mid-September to mid-October, I will be in Costa Rica exploring how it is managing its energy transition and working on stories to share about that with our listeners. So if you live there, or if you have contacts there who would have expert knowledge about Costa Rica's energy transition, and you'd like to put me in touch with them, I would appreciate the tips. Just drop me a line at chris at energytransitionshow.com. And now, our conversation with Sarah Hastings-Simon, recorded June 24th, 2022. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Sarah, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me. 
You're located in Calgary, Alberta, which is famous for being the seat of the Canadian oil and gas industry. And Alberta is also a major coal producer. So it's probably fair to say that Alberta is as much of a petrostate as Texas or Saudi Arabia or any other major economy that depends heavily on fossil fuel resources for its revenues. So today I'd like to talk about where the energy transition is going in Alberta and in Canada more broadly. I mean, certainly there are lots of people in the fossil fuel industry in Alberta who would like to see the industry continue along as it is. But there's also plenty of people in Alberta and many more in the other provinces who are primarily worried about climate change and who would like to see an end to the fossil fuel regime and a vigorous push for renewables in Canada. So just to get us started then, for the sake of our listeners in the 47 countries who listen to our show who may not be familiar with the Canadian context, maybe you could just sort of outline the politics and the popular views about the energy transition in Alberta and in Canada more broadly. Sure. So, I mean, obviously, that's a super complex question, and there's a lot of different things at play. But I think, largely speaking, starting from the understanding, obviously, Canada is a very federal country. So we have this collection of provinces that are really different when it comes to their economies, their natural resource space, and the people in the provinces. And so you get certainly a lot of tension across Canada about what the right kind of climate policy looks like. Layered onto that, you have a lot of history of tension between the federal and provincial governments as far as control of energy resources and climate policy. And then at the same time, we have in Alberta, really over the past, almost like coming on, I don't know, six years, depending on how you define it now, a lot of change within our own provincial government. And those things all kind of play out. And I'm sure we'll, we'll kind of get into that. We had basically a single party that was in charge in Alberta for 40 years, order of magnitude. And then that changed. And obviously, there's a lot of volatility that comes from that. That said, I think Canada as a whole, across all kinds of polling, you pretty much consistently see that Canada as a whole wants to see action on climate. And Alberta, there's parts of the province that want to see that and other parts that don't. And so there is a little bit of a difference then when you start looking at that majority. So I was looking back at some recent polling numbers. So Canada has a uh, emission reduction target in the range of 40 to 45 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. And across Canada as a whole, a majority, something like 70%, see that as either about right or not ambitious enough. In Alberta, you're looking at a very slim majority that think that's about right or not ambitious enough, but still more than 50%. So only 45% of Albertans kind of see that as too ambitious. So maybe that's one good example of sort of where we are. There's a lot of people that want to see less being done. There's a lot of people that see a transition to a, a world that's using less oil and gas as obviously a direct threat on on their livelihood. But at the same time, it's not the case that somehow the province of Alberta as a whole is just against any kind of action on climate. That's good to know. I mean, if you just talk to people who are in the oil and gas industry in Alberta, I think you get a very distorted point of view about that. So I'm glad you were able to kind of give us that context. But I mean, the oil and gas industry has a lot of influence, political influence in Alberta, and it's probably safe to say that it has more influence there than any other industry. From what I've heard, it seems like they're thinking like the oil majors, hoping that they can pivot to using CCS to reduce their emissions footprint or making hydrogen, that would be blue hydrogen made from natural gas with all the associated emissions, not green hydrogen made from clean sources. 
without too much disruption to their existing businesses as we get into the transition here. But I'm skeptical about both of those things for reasons we've discussed in several previous shows, including most recently episodes 165, 173, 176, and 177. So if CCS and blue hydrogen don't pan out, what are Alberta's options for remaining relevant in the energy sector and for helping Canada meet its climate objectives? So I think that's a good summary where industry is at. And yes, they do have a lot of influence. Again, it depends on who exactly is in government. But currently with the current government in Alberta, they have an incredible amount of influence. They do. And I guess maybe we'll come to that later. We talk about the industry as this monolith of the oil and gas industry. But there's actually a lot of dynamics that play out within that industry. And you have a mix of these really large multinational companies, as well as small producers. And so there are differences in the way that they see see these opportunities. And part of that is sort of the bigger ones, I think, see more of a potential to be part of a transition, whereas some of the smaller oil and gas companies, probably rightly so, are pretty narrowly focused and don't have a good transition path at all. Come back to your question. So I think I'm similarly skeptical about the ability of CCS and hydrogen to to kind of address all of the challenges that the industry is facing. And When I say that, I think that there will be, and I guess we're going to see now to what extent, but I think we will see these things deployed. You know, I think we will see blue hydrogen made in Alberta, maybe some of it exported. We will see CCS being built also in some of our other heavy industries like cement. But if you think about the scale that you would have to do that in order to actually replace all of the oil and gas that we have as exports today, I think that's where it starts to be a pretty hard case to make that that's going to work out, that you're going to somehow be able to be the cheapest and lowest carbon producer in a resource starting as one of the highest cost and certainly one of the highest carbon resources. And so I think often when you see this like conversation playing out, you have industry on one side saying we're making all these efforts to reduce emissions and there are things that have been done and yet they still remain a very high carbon producer because the nature of the resource itself is high carbon and that's where I think again like the emotional side of that argument becomes quite difficult because you sort of feel like well there are people that feel like they're making an effort and it's not getting to where it needs to be so then what else can happen I think that certainly broadening the definition of energy and thinking about it also happens that we actually have really great renewable resources in Alberta in terms of of wind and solar. So there's certainly things that I think can be done on that side in the energy sector. When you start to think about adjacent competencies, and there's been a lot of talk, obviously, about critical minerals and and resources that are needed, and not to be too simplistic, but we're a big province, we have a lot of land, we have a lot of stuff in the ground, and that stuff includes some of those critical minerals, also minerals like things like lithium and others. So I sometimes like to think about the idea that Alberta as an oil producer is really been a provider in large part of mobility to the world through its oil. And so how do you think about taking a broader step of saying, okay, well, maybe mobility, I think, is increasingly going to be less about low carbon oil as an oil that's produced with a low carbon footprint and more about electrification. And so then to what extent can we become a producer of lithium that goes into the batteries that provides that electrification? But as you say, it's really challenging because there's a lot of pressure to focus government spending and innovation research and scale up into areas that are closer to the business of the incumbent industries of the day. And you see that the the first version of Alberta's hydrogen strategy was actually a page or two at the back of a natural gas strategy. 
strategy. And I think that really mm. <laughs> says it all. And, and that doesn't mean that everybody that's working on these things is thinking about it that way. I think there's people that are legitimately thinking about hydrogen in and of itself. But I think the government's positioning it as really, it's a way to increase demand or maintain demand for natural gas rather than the hydrogen itself. Right. So what are we to think then? Is industrial policy in Alberta going to remain focused as it has been for so long on the oil and gas and coal sectors? So I think a portion of it will. And I think that's inescapable. And that's not an Alberta only challenge. I think every sure. every region that you go to has its industrial policy influenced by its incumbents. We look at Japan and the hydrogen story there, right? And Toyota and things like that. So sure. I wouldn't want to pick specifically on Alberta. But there is actually this one interesting case of the history, actually, of the development of the oil sand resource, which is by far the biggest resource in Alberta's oil mix. And the technology to produce that, and in particular to produce the part of the oil sands that's deeper down, the part that you can't get by simply mining, but you're actually having to drill these horizontal wells and send heat in the form of steam down there to produce that oil. That actually is a story of government-funded innovation that from where we sit today, we might question it from a climate perspective, but I think we don't necessarily see that although it's the oil industry at the time when that happened, it was much more actually not about the incumbent industry, which was the conventional industry of the day. Right. We've never really told the story, the history, I guess I should say, of the oil sector in Alberta on this show. Maybe it'd be worth giving our listeners kind of a super quick Cliff Notes version of it. Yeah, I think it's a super fascinating story. It has interesting pieces in it. Like at one point, they were considering detonating a nuclear bomb underground to sort of release the oil. That didn't happen. But it goes back to really the 70s. So, I mean, people knew about the oil sands for a long time before then. There had been efforts made to, and there ultimately was the technology to so-called mine the resource. So basically, you're sort of digging it out in big shovelfuls, again, sort of simplifying it, but but for all intents and purposes, you're, you're digging it out in big shovelfuls and mixing it with a bunch of water to kind of get the oil separated from the sand. And that had been happening. But again, as I said, there's only a portion of the resource that you can get it that way. And so really the big prize from the, from the resource base was trying to figure out how to produce the stuff that was underground and too hard to get it. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, kind of leading up to doing that, there was really, you had the conventional oil industry, which was Alberta's sort of first first experience with oil wealth in the 50s or so. And that was really the major driver. There was quite a lot of that resource there that was produced. The first wells were in and around the Edmonton region. But basically, you had healthy industry that was functioning. They were actually, ironically enough, in today's context, facing export constraints. And there were challenges with getting pipelines built. And so the oil sands was actually viewed really as a competitor. And there was a lot of legislation on the books to try to actually limit when those pipeline constraints became an issue to limit the amount of production that could come from the oil sands to protect the conventional oil industry. And then things started to shift in the early 70s. I mean, there was a lot going on. Of course, you had also the international story. But when it comes to just the resource itself, you had the conventional production entering in into a declining phase. So you had fewer new wells being found than what was being produced. And that really at least coincided with a bit of a shift of, if not embracing the oil sands with open arms, at least less pushing against 
their production. And then you had this new premier who came in, Premier Lougheed, who's sort of like both of the major parties in Alberta want to try to claim him as they are being the Lougheed of Alberta. So he's sort of great legacy that he has there. And he came in and really said, we're going to figure out how to access this resource that was underground. And if you look at the speeches that he gave, and some of my work has been looking at the history of the story, he was pretty direct. Like he walked into these rooms of conventional oil producers and pretty much told them straight up the conventional resources in decline and we have to figure out what we're going to do to continue to make this province prosperous going forward. It's sort of hard almost to imagine a, a leader doing that today in Alberta or elsewhere. But he did. He set up this organization called AOSTRA, which was a government-funded research and development that was charged with the goal of basically figure out how to produce these resources, figure out how to produce the in-situ oil sands. And they worked with industry. They piloted a lot of different things. But the conventional industry, they were really pushing at the time for more support for enhanced oil recovery instead. And that obviously would have tied more closely into their business interests at the day. But Lougheed went ahead with this other plan. And ultimately, there was a lot of pushback. It came time to actually build out. They built this so-called underground test facility which is basically sort of a almost like a mine underground from which they could drill these horizontal wells because the technology didn't exist to do this from the surface at the time. And so they had the idea, though, to try this technology, which ultimately became SAG-D, the steam-assisted gravity drainage, where you drill two horizontal wells in parallel and you put steam in one and the oil seeps into the other and you produce it from that well. And there was really no industry support at the time for doing that. So they were supposed to do their projects in this sort of like joint funding way. They couldn't get it. The leadership of Aostrian decided to go ahead with it anyway. And SAGD turned out was wildly successful. They produced much more of the oil at better efficiency rates than anybody thought. And industry sort of retroactively bought into the program at that time then. And so when you look at sort of the, the going forward, it looks like it was this joint partnership, but it was really quite a bit government driven, really. And people were questioning if it would work. It was borrowing a lot of kind of techniques more from the mining side. And it had to confront, I think it's all innovation does, it had to confront these sort of views about <laughs> a sector. And to the point that they actually ended up painting this underground test facility in white paint, the whole thing, to make it like seem less like this dirty underground site that the, the oil <laughs> industry had to go into because like that was what miners did. And we weren't miners, so we wouldn't want to go into this dirty place. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm realizing now that I should probably explain for the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar that Oil sands, which is the preferred term in the industry in Canada, sometimes referred to as tar sands or bituminous sands also. It's actually a mixture of sand and water and clay and bitumen, which is one of the heaviest of the hydrocarbons. So basically, it's a solid at room temperature. It's very viscous. So if you want to produce it and separate it from the sands, the old method was to just scrape away a big part of the land, just what they call the overburden, and then take giant scoops of this and the world's largest dump trucks, I believe, and haul it off to a facility where it could be put through a process where it's injected with steam and that helps to loosen the bitumen from the sand. And then it, it actually has to be upgraded from there to be turned into essentially a synthetic form of crude oil because 
Bitumen is a form of hydrocarbon that Mother Nature hasn't quite yet converted into oil. It's a precursor of what we would consider crude oil from a chemical standpoint. So the process that you were just referring to, the the steam-assisted gravity drainage was one of several techniques that later evolved of what they call in-situ extraction. So rather than just removing the overburden and then digging up vast amounts of this stuff and then hauling it away and then hauling it back, they're actually just using steam or other methods to loosen up the oil from the sand in place and then leave the sand and the rest of the dirt and stuff where it is and just try to pull the oil out. And there's other techniques that have been evolved over the years, Thai and Capri and various other things. But anyway, I just thought I would just try to explain what we're talking about here with oil sands or tar sands. You know, this is one of the most environmentally damaging forms of oil extraction in the world, just because it's Certainly with the overburden and mining method, it's very disruptive. It's a massive scar on the landscape. And even with the in-situ methods, it requires a vast amount of fresh water. The damage to the Athabascan watershed where the tar sands are located is one of the big environmental damage stories, I think, of the oil industry. And then on a total life cycle basis, there's a huge footprint in terms of the energy in versus energy out. The EROI is famously fairly low, and there's a lot of emissions associated with just producing the oil because not only do you have to either mine and process or just do your in situ methods, but then you have to do the upgrading and so on just to produce the synthetic crude that can actually be made to flow through a pipeline so that it can be sent to a refinery. So it's a very intensive process, very dirty form of crude extraction, and it has a very large environmental footprint. And the indigenous population of Alberta, which in Canada they're often referred to as First Nations, have taken a lot of damage from their lands and water and health effects and so on from this whole process. So I think it's important to bear that in mind as we think about the resource. I mean, it is a vast resource. There's a lot of it there for sure. But if you're king of the world and you could choose, we're going to use these crude sources first and those ones last, I think the tar sands would be toward the bottom of the list. <laughs> you know. So with all that said, it's a very lucrative resource and it's an important part of the economic base for Canada. And I just have to wonder... To what extent industrial policy or provincial policy, or for that matter, even national policy, really appropriately considers the environmental toll that producing the oil sands comes with? I think it's, as you say, it's hard for certainly provincial, but even national policy to do that because of the incredible wealth that is contained in the resource. There's always questions I think that more than anything, it's really the global demand for oil that's going to have the biggest impact on the trajectory of development of these resources. Mm. And so in some sense, there's a lot of attention obviously given to the climate policy that comes down from the federal government and a lot of anger in Alberta around that. 
But I think at the end of the day, the biggest impact that policy is going to have on Alberta's oil resource is really the global policy and the extent to which it reduces demand for oil. And I think we're just at the tail beginning of starting to see that happen in electrification of transportation and stuff and seeing how that plays out. But certainly the Canadian policies become a big flashpoint for discussion and concern and That said, there's a lot that the Canadian federal government and provincial government could be doing a lot better when it comes to the local impact of these resources. And as you mentioned, on the mining side, one of the big challenges is that you are basically creating these big tailing ponds. And the scale of them, I mean, it's really shocking. We have something like, I don't have even the latest numbers in front of me, but it's something like 1.3 trillion liters of fluid tailings that have accumulated. And that's tens of billions in liabilities of which the government only holds a few percent security on. And then, as you mentioned, of course, too, these resources are located in parts of the province far away from Calgary and Edmonton, certainly a lot of them, and closer to the homes of a number of First Nations who are much more directly impacted by the local pollution that comes. But it's a challenging thing for the federal and provincial government. And I think it's also, you know, maybe I drink the Kool-Aid too much now, being an Albertan now for the past decade plus. But I also think that there are different challenges associated with different resources around the world. And there's no doubt that the environmental challenges that are associated with the resource here in Canada are among the highest, if not the highest. But there are other challenges with saying, well, you know, we're just going to have Saudi Arabia produce it all and we won't produce any. I think the the solution is really how do we move away from oil overall? And the discussion has changed very much, even in those 10 plus years, because it's sort of hard to believe. But I feel like if you go back 10 years, people were really just assuming that demand was sort of going to grow without end. And now I think they were in a very different place. And that even, I think, is acknowledged in different ways. So when I talked about that polling, you know, if you ask people on the street or you do polling, people believe that the oil resource in Alberta will continue to produce for a long time and will continue to grow. But if you look at what's happening to enrollment in university programs, the programs that produce the petroleum engineers and others, those have just dramatically shrunk to the point that some of them are being closed. And so there is some kind of recognition that's going on there, at least behind closed doors, and what parents are sort of influencing their kids also about where they're choosing to study and things like that, too. Mm -hmm. Well, on that point, as we think about the energy transition and where this is going, and I definitely take your point about the importance of reducing demand, ultimately. It seems to me that the Justin Trudeau administration has really been sort of tacking about with the wind, trying to satisfy everyone from the oil industry of Alberta to the parts of the public that want to take vigorous action on climate. And ultimately, I don't know if they're really satisfying anyone. So where do you think federal policy is headed in Canada? I mean, what can we expect out of Ottawa in the coming years in terms of genuine energy transition strategies? Yeah, so maybe if you're in a federation and you're satisfying nobody, you're doing a good job. I don't know. (laughs) So the 
current federal government, which has now, I would say, won really two climate elections against a conservative party that in one case didn't have a plan on climate, and then in the second case maybe had a plan, but one that I wouldn't say was super credible as far as the emissions reductions it was actually going to achieve. They are still in power. They are the ones in charge. So, I mean, I guess that gives you some sense of where things are going, at least for now. The story of Canada and climate targets, it's really, you have to kind of disaggregate it into there have been successful emissions reductions in some sectors, like the electricity sector, for example, and those are being combined with emissions growth from primarily, again, the oil and gas sector, because especially if you're talking about 1990 dates or even 2005, you're sort of coming in counting at the beginning of the massive scale up of the production of the oil sands. And so you sort of have two climate stories going on, emissions reductions in some sectors and growth in the others. And obviously that's you know combining for Canada to, to fail to hit climate targets. That said, I think we really do have, for the first time, plans that are are legitimate and do put Canada on a path to be able to meet those targets. So, I mean, obviously, only time will tell, but, but I don't think that it's correct to look at Canada and say, oh, well, they've always failed before, so therefore, they're just going to fail again. But you see some of those tensions that we talked about before playing out. And so in the last budget, for example, there was a 50% CCS tax credit given. That's quite a bit higher than any other clean tech tax credit that was there. We don't actually have, unlike the US, we don't have an ITC or PTC for wind and solar. So there is certainly still the government bought this pipeline, you know, there still is certainly support flowing to the oil and gas industry. I would say it's not always maybe even then being recognized. Despite that, there's a lot of noise from the industry about how it's not enough. And then of course, we have a carbon price, and that is in place. And that is ratcheting up So there is a suite of policies that can get us there. And now I think a lot of the right ones are in place. I mean, there's probably some more that are still needed. But what is the willingness to continue to kind of turn up the ratcheting that's in place to get there? Well, I'm glad you mentioned the carbon price. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But staying with sort of the economic case, obviously, with oil and gas being such a large part of the economic base in Alberta and fossil fuels being a big part of the overall base for Canada, Fossil fuels and their exports are really important sources of revenue, but they're also facing headwinds now with increased focus on the transition. And where that has showed up most prominently, I think, in recent years is in the pipeline projects. And so these would have allowed Canada to expand its export capacity, but there's been quite a checkered past there. I mean, I believe the first major pipeline project to be canceled was the Enbridge Northern Gateway project, which was a proposed pipeline and oil tanker project that would ship Alberta's oil sands to a marine terminal in Kitimat, BC, for then transportation overseas to Asian markets via oil tankers. That one experienced significant opposition, in part because it traversed rainforests, I think, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau canceled that project in 2016. Then there was the infamous Keystone XL pipeline, which was to carry 830,000 barrels a day of crude oil originating in the tar sands to Nebraska, where it would have connected with the original Keystone pipeline that runs to U.S. refineries on the Gulf Coast. And as I recall, that one faced several holds and restarts until the Biden administration canceled the permit for the U.S. portion of the project. That was actually on Biden's first day in office. And then TC Energy, the project developer, subsequently tried to salvage the project, but just about a year ago, 
the government of Alberta threw in the towel on that. So after 16 years of effort to get that project built, I think it's now dead after saddling Albertans with $1.3 billion in costs. Then there was the 68-year-old Trans Mountain Pipeline, which Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government bought out in 2018 for $4.5 billion Canadian to help get it finished after its previous owner, Kinder Morgan, couldn't overcome legal hurdles it faced to complete the expansion. The 1,150-kilometer-long or 715-mile-long pipeline runs from Alberta to the British Columbia coast, and that was, again, a way to export shipments of oil to Asia. And that was to be nearly tripled in capacity to 890,000 barrels a day. But that experienced numerous regulatory delays and, again, plenty of popular opposition. The government planned to sell the pipeline once it could sort of de-risk it and conclude some agreements with the First Nations. But then in February of this year, the government said it would halt any further public funding for the pipeline expansion after its cost surged 70%. Originally, it was expected to cost $7.4 billion Canadian, but now it's at $21.4 billion. That's $16.8 billion U.S. And now Canada's budget watchdog says the expansion project is no longer a profitable investment because the costs have exploded. And then finally... Two years ago, the federal government banned oil tankers carrying more than 12,500 metric tons of crude oil or oil products from using ports along most of BC's north coast. So that kind of cuts off the Asian route. So all in all, I mean, this is a pretty sad story, isn't it? It's leaving Canadian taxpayers on the hook for many billions of dollars in essentially stranded investment with little to show for it. So how important are the pipelines at this point in your view? So I think you're right that, first of all, it's just sad that all this money has been spent. And I think the most recent example of that is maybe one of the most egregious, but the Keystone XL, which got this $1.3 billion from the Alberta government, that decision and that agreement was something that was negotiated behind closed doors, came out as this is what Alberta is investing in, despite the fact that it was, if I have my timing right, it was during the U.S. presidential campaign. It was already very clear that if Biden won, the permit would be canceled and it wouldn't be going ahead. So coming back to kind of principles of industrial policy, it's good for governments to take on risks that they can control or manage. It's generally not good for them to take on risks that they can't, like what happens in another country and what that government does. So I would put that forward as one of the clearest examples of what we were talking about earlier of sort of the influence of the industry and how now you have $1.3 billion that could have gone to other types of government support. Maybe some part of it will be recovered, but certainly there'll be significant losses there. So the story that you, and it's quite a lot when you hear it all together, <laughs> the story that you lay out, you know, I think one thing to kind of keep in mind is that this is taking place over, as you said, this long period of time, right, over like 15 plus years. The very beginning of the story of the fight over pipelines, this was one of the first, I think, examples of big infrastructure that was hard to get built for permitting reasons. And so I think that in the beginning, it sort of came almost, if anything, as like a surprise in some sense to the industry that maybe not that there would be opposition, but that it would actually be successful in preventing construction. But also this idea that it was important to build all these pipelines to the coast to bring oil to Asia, because that was a big 
potential for market diversification and fundamentally for growth. Again, a very different story, I think, today than when these pipelines were first planned and talked about. Again, if you look at the electrification of of transportation in Asia and really a big question about how much more demand is there really going to be in some of these countries where people at the time were assuming there would be massive, massive growth there. And so I think that really illustrates one point in the whole pipeline discussion, which is that you really have sort of two different things going on. You have this question of pipelines as constraints for local production in the near term. You have the local impacts, and this ties up with a whole other story and a whole other issue that Canada is only just starting to kind of confront now of reconciliation and of the relationships between Canada and the different First Nations peoples whose lands these pipelines cross. And that is a whole story for for another whole podcast with someone who is an expert in that. But, but that is also a big part of what's coming into play here. And then you have what's actually happening at the end of the day to the demand for this product if you were able to get the pipeline built. And so sometimes I think that the pipeline story has been very important. It certainly gets a lot of attention. I think it has somewhat shifted maybe what has gotten built out in the interim. But you can sort of look at it from another direction and say, actually, again, I think the bigger question of investments in the oil sands going forward has more to do with the ultimate market of which transportation is a piece of that. But there is the potential to do other things. And people have been working on oil by rail and even sort of trying to think of different ways to do that to solidify the bitumen and be able to ship it in ways on rail that would be less less dangerous, because I mean, of course, there's real safety issues that come up there. But all of that to say, I guess I think if it was only about the pipelines, and it was only like, okay, we can't build a pipeline, you're going to have to figure out something else to do, that that would not be sufficient to really dramatically change the trajectory of the development of the resource. Obviously, it does impact the cost that producers are getting for their oil. It does impact the amount that can be easily shipped by pipeline. But I think that it's a piece of the story, I guess, overall. But it's also a piece that, again, has attracted a lot of attention also domestically as well, too, and big challenges around we haven't talked about this at all when I talked about Alberta, but there was this whole inquiry that was set up by the current government into to what extent did foreign money come in to prevent development of the oil sands. And despite, I think, trying very hard to find some kind of smoking gun, ultimately there wasn't really a smoking gun there. There was, of course, some money that came in to address the environmental impacts, but not in any, any inappropriate or illegal way. And I think that's just all part of this pipeline story and Keystone XL and all that attention. There's a lot of real impacts that pipelines have on both the local environment through which they pass and on the ability to build out the resource. And then there is a whole nother set of impacts that pipelines have through their symbolism and the stories that sort of both sides can tell around the fights over pipelines over the past decade plus. Yeah. Well, speaking of stranded assets, the Canadian oil and gas sector, like their counterparts in the U.S., (laughs) are abandoning wells or threatening to or potentially going to and leave the taxpayer on the hook for cleaning up a lot of mess after they've run off with the profits, aren't they? 
Yeah. And we have, I have to say, I have to point out one like language thing that I actually, maybe some listener knows the history of this. So here, an abandoned well is actually one that has been like correctly shut down. Oh, So okay. it's a very strange language difference. So when we talk about wells that are sort of left for the taxpayer, we call them orphan wells. Okay. <laughs> All right. Maybe that's a Canadianism. I don't know. I don't know. But this is definitely a big problem. One that, as a colleague of mine, UFC Martin Olchinsky likes to say, the oil price is never right for dealing with these outstanding liabilities and inactive <laughs> wells. Either the price is too low, and so there's no money to do it, or the price is too high, and then, of course, all the money has to go to to new production. So, right. And add on to that, an energy regulator that has been, I think, on the issue of liabilities captured by industry. Sure. Um, and you have the issue that we're facing, which is that there are efforts being made. There is some well reclamation going on. On, but there is a growing or at least not shrinking sufficiently fast inventory of inactive wells. So wells that are not producing and they're not properly abandoned or reclaimed. And in some cases, wells that even are on paper properly reclaimed aren't actually turning up when people are kind of doing the quality control on them. And that's a growing number. And I think that there is this real question in my mind of we have right now these massive spikes in oil prices. We're seeing massive payments, dividends to shareholders and share buybacks. And we are not seeing a similarly massive investment in dealing with that outstanding liability. So it's really the Alberta taxpayer and ultimately the federal taxpayer, because we are part of a federation here, who's going to be left holding the bag on that. And the same is true from the oil sands. The tailings issue as well, as I was mentioning, there's sort of tens of billions, 30 billion, or perhaps more of outstanding liabilities. And the cleanup of those is not happening at a pace that is nearly fast enough, especially as we look at the IA's different scenarios for oil price going forward. So yeah. certainly very concerned from Alberta government not sort of doing what needs to be done. And and you see that actually playing out in rural Alberta too, because there are a number of oil and gas companies that are not paying their municipal property taxes or paying municipalities sort of what they're owed for the wells that are on their land. And that's a big problem for these rural municipality budgets. And we also don't see that getting fixed very quickly during this period of high prices. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that there was a growing number of these wells that were not properly, quote, abandoned and reclaimed. Let's mention what that number is. Uh, according to an article you wrote <laughs> in 2019, I think, there's almost 100,000 of these inactive wells in Alberta alone. There are I don't remember the number for the U.S. It's easily in the hundreds of thousands. It might even be closer to a million of these wells. So this is really just a vast problem. And I would say on both sides of the border, there's been very, very little appetite amongst the legislatures to actually make the industry pay for its own cleanup. It's remarkable. Yeah, and so we do have something here called the Orphan Well Fund, which sort of the idea was that industry gets less regulated, there aren't upfront bonding, and then they are responsible to sort of police each other. Wink, and so wink. They have to 
Yeah, exactly. Wink, wink. And so what happens, though, is indeed this fund, it's massively undercapitalized. It's gotten loans from the federal and government and other places. There's been other money flowing and stuff. So, you know, I think it's fair to say it's just it's not working. There has been a a slight decline in the number of these inactive wells since I wrote that piece, but not nearly at the pace that's needed to sort of get things cleaned up in time when we look at future oil demand. And again, it's not clear. Some of those may have gone back to a producing stage, at least for a little while. But it's also, there's a lot of concern about whether the abandoning and reclamation process is really being done properly. Yeah. So what's your outlook all in all for the oil sector? I mean, on one hand, thanks to Russia's war on Ukraine, oil prices are at levels we haven't seen since the historic price rise of 2008. And everyone from consumers to shippers to industry is struggling with high prices for gasoline and diesel. Uh, That would seem to bode well for demand, at least. Even the high cost oil sands of Alberta can make money at these prices. On the other hand, The climate imperative is for us to find ways to stop burning oil altogether, and that just gets more imperative every day. So how is the investment climate for Canadian oil producers and pipeline operators looking to you now, just sort of looking forward? So the future for Canada's oil and gas sector, and in particular in the oil sand sector, is really different when you're talking about existing production versus greenfield new production. Hmm. And so the costs for operating existing mines and existing SAG-D facilities, with a few exceptions, you have some that are quite low efficiency and cost quite a bit more, but but a lot of them can be making money at relatively low oil prices. And so you know, I think in the last downturn, they kind of sharpened their pencils and figured out how to do that at even lower prices, again, partially by not dealing with all the liabilities that are there. But there is certainly, I think, a pathway for continued production. What I think we'll see and are seeing a big shift on is I would be very surprised at this point if we see any new greenfield production in the oil sands, any new either big mines or SAG-D projects coming on. I think there's just not the appetite for that. I don't remember if we talked about this, but these are very long-term projects. They're sort of like the opposite of, of the shale and tight oil story where you drill well and the production drops off in some short time period. We're talking about decades of production here. And so I think the big question mark, and we'll see what happens over the next few years, is to what extent things like CCS or other approaches to really address the emissions get deployed. And I have to say, I'm a little bit skeptical of that actually happening, because if I put myself in the position of these companies, the business case for it It's not as strong as I think sometimes people want to imply. And I mean, of course, carbon pricing has a role to play there. But one of the challenges is that a lot of the technologies that have been developed to reduce the energy needs to produce, say, in SAG-D by mixing things like solvents into your steam, stuff like that, they're very hard to put onto existing facilities. They're much easier to build a new greenfield facility in this way. And so if we're not doing that, it's really about what do you do with existing facilities? A lot of that is CCS or potentially electrification, but that just comes with costs, right? And so the question is, to what extent can you continue to run your facilities as they are at higher emissions? And when do you really have to stop doing that until you have a very big 
stick in terms of carbon pricing or a very big carrot in terms of CCS support, I'm not sure why you would build them even if you can, because you're going to be just reducing your profits. I'm not saying that's what you should do. I'm just, if you sit down and do the business case out and you know, this 50% CCS tax credit that came out in the budget, the first response from some of the major oil sands industry players who are the ones that have this pathways organization and maintain that they want to get to net zero by 2050 for production, the first response was, well, that's not enough. There needs to be more public money coming than half the cost. (laughs) So I don't know. We'll see. Like, maybe I should place some bets on this or something. But like, (laughs) I don't think that we're going to see massive build out of CCS in the oil sands. But I'd love to be proved wrong. So yeah. Well, let's talk about gas because that's also a very big business here in Alberta and particularly LNG exports. With Europe now trying to find alternate sources of LNG to replace the gas it's been getting from Russia, Canadian exporters must be suddenly very excited. They've got an attractive opportunity here that they didn't have before, particularly if the only other short to medium term alternative for some European countries like Germany seems to be reverting back to coal. Yeah, so I looked at this actually recently in a research piece that I did with Lydia Yang and Arvind uh, Ravi Kumar, and we were trying to sort of ask this question of how long is the bridge of natural gas as a bridge to a low carbon future? And I should say this is similar, same thing with the oil sands and people saying, oh, well, you know, if only we had Keystone, we could have so much more oil sands production and that would be solving the gas prices. And I think if you look at the timelines of these things, that's not quite right. Even if Keystone had gone ahead now, it wouldn't be done. You wouldn't necessarily have a bunch of new oil sands facilities. And so these like shorter term challenges that we have whether it's LNG or oil, in a world that's also trying to reduce dependence on fossil fuels, we can't necessarily solve them just by thinking about ramping up production, even if we could. And that's what we looked at in the case of the LNG, where people in Canada like to talk about this idea that we should be exporting more LNG as a climate solution, because that could be replacing coal as a source of power generation in other countries. And in sort of one slice of time, that's true, right? If you tomorrow swapped your coal plants for natural gas plants from the LNG, you would be reducing emissions if your upstream natural gas emissions are low enough. But what we found in this research where we really looked and said, okay, so if you take the coal plants that exist on these different pathways, 1.5, a 2, and a 3-degree pathway, and you look at how many coal plants there are and how much natural gas you would need to switch those, what we found basically, to summarize it, is that if you were to increase the amount of LNG, you would make hitting your three degree increase more likely. So it would be sort of an insurance against building out a bunch of new coal or having these coal plants operate. But you make getting to a two degree or 1.5 degree world less likely. So you would have a bunch of LNG facilities that are, at least in the case of LNG being used in the coal plants, in the electricity plants, you would have too much natural gas and it would be actually adding to where you would be if you're on those pathways. Now, there's a bit of room on either side because you can say, well, we could use some of that natural gas for industrial uses to substitute for coal. But on the other hand, in another piece that we have that's available as a preprint now, we took it a step further and said, do you actually have the pipelines that you need? It's a part of the reason that the 
coal to gas switching has been so relatively successful in Canada and the U.S. is that you had a fair amount of pipelines to bring the natural gas to these coal plants. And what we found is that that really differs by country. So in a place like China, you do have some of those pipelines that you need. But in countries like India, in much of Africa, you don't have a really robust existing natural gas pipeline infrastructure. And so it's not just a matter of bringing the supply to this import terminal, but you would actually also have to build out this massive pipeline infrastructure in the country. And on the one hand, that would take a lot more money that you could instead divert into going straight to renewable sources of power generation. And then you would also be locking in a lot of generation if you do decide to build out those pipelines. So, you know, I think where we came out is that a bit of LNG can be part of a climate solution in the near term. In the longer term, after five to 10 years, we really need to be thinking about any new LNG facilities that get built. How do we create business cases, create permitting in a way that is very clear that if we're successful at building out renewables in places of the world that then no longer need this LNG, that that doesn't just end up being additive and it doesn't end up contributing to more emissions. And I would say we don't have a super great track record of retiring facilities ahead of their useful lifetime just because of a climate impact for them. If anything, we see the opposite. We see demand really being created to enable those to continue to operate. And so the idea that somehow we should do this massive, massive build out of LNG, and that would be great from a climate perspective, I think it could be potentially a climate insurance, but it's not going to be a big business case. And if it's an insurance, then that has a very different business case that sits behind that. Yeah. And it's not just a matter of needing the pipeline capacity. You also have to build new LNG import terminals, right? Like this is a really major problem in Europe right now. They're trying to figure out how, even if they could get additional LNG shipments from elsewhere in the world to replace the gas pipeline imports that they're getting now from Russia, they need to build massive new LNG import terminals. And these are these are very large investments because the gas is coming in at whatever it is, I don't remember, negative 279 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. And then it has to be slowly warmed up under very controlled conditions and made so that it can get into the pipeline system again. It's very expensive, very complicated stuff. So what about coal? I mean, I would imagine that demand for Canadian coal in the U.S. has dwindled as our coal-fired power plants have been shutting down. But is there still significant demand for seaborne coal exports from Canada? So we have a pretty successful coal phase out in Canada. We're not quite done yet, but we took actually also a different path than in the U.S. So there was government mandated coal phase out, basically, and that included as part of it some efforts to think about just transition and transition support for workers that still remains to be seen how successful that is, but there was a more sort of directive approach taken. Interestingly, even in Alberta, the coal phase out maintained public support. And I think part of it's probably due to the relative size of the coal industry versus the oil and gas industry. But part of it was also due to the support from a number of health organizations and really the way in which the coal phase out was tied to reducing the number of emergency room visits for children suffering from asthma. That sort of, I think, was a good news story about what could be done by replacing coal generation with other sources. We do have some exports. We actually just went through over the last kind of year, year and a half, a debate about opening up parts of Alberta's kind of beautiful parkland for coal. But there was pretty strong pushback 
from a relatively broad range of folks across Alberta. And the government actually did walk back their plans to open up some of these places for mining. There was a really strong opposition in a number of rural communities, strong opposition from big parts of the ranching communities, I think due to some of the water quality issues. It even came down to one of our most famous country singers really came out in strong opposition to the idea of opening up some of these parts of the province for coal exports. And so that didn't end up happening. Mm. And that kind of tension exists also when it comes to oil and gas productions, too. I wouldn't say that rural Alberta is a monolith when it comes to supporting oil and gas production. And there are a lot of concerns about the impacts on one of our other major industries, which is the agricultural industry. And I think we just saw that playing out even more strongly for coal and bringing in, of course, the place where these things are happening is closer to where more people who have a louder voice live. It's closer to some of the beautiful parks where more people are going. And so that also, I think, plays out differently from the story that we were talking about before. Maybe not necessarily rightly so. It's a form of kind of environmental racism that you have really playing out there. But yeah. but that is what ends up happening. Yeah. Well, yeah. When you've lost the country singers, you've probably lost. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so what about power exports? Canada is joined to the U.S. actually directly via transmission line as part of the same ISO in several places. But it's still a different country with different rules and challenges. So can you talk a bit about how both Ontario and Alberta are phasing out coal generation and the impacts that that will have for power exports to the U.S.? So Canada's power footprint, similar to what we were talking about before, things are very different across the provinces, that holds true for electricity generation. So on the whole, Canada actually has a very, very high percentage of non-emitting sources of generation from a combination of hydropower and nuclear. You have provinces like BC and Quebec that are basically at zero emissions today already. And then you have other provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan that historically relied very heavily on coal. Ontario is a little bit in the middle. So when we think about exports, it's quite a mix. And there is efforts to build out transmission infrastructure from eastern Canada with the idea that there could be more exports into the U.S. to help contribute to decarbonization of the electricity sector there. A bit of a different story here out in the West. Ontario successfully phased out its coal power quite a few years ago now, and that was a big piece of the reduction that Canada had in emissions overall. And Alberta has a legislated coal phase-out agreement that we are likely to meet much ahead of the time. And that's another one where things change quickly. I remember when it was being discussed in 2016, 2017, it was very, the sky is falling. There's no way that we're going to be able to phase out coal in Alberta by, by 2030. And here we are, 2022, and we have just a few coal plants left operating. Many of those are on their way out too. So I think that is all going relatively well. There is transitional support. It's challenging though, of course. You have communities that are, in Alberta, we have a number of coal plants that are really built at the mines, this mine mouth coal plants. And that's a real challenge for these communities 
And I think it's definitely too early to say that that has been successful, but at least because there was a legislated target that was able to be tied with some kind of targeted support and at least an attempt to deal with those challenges. The next real challenge that we have now is the gas phase out. And the federal government has signaled a 2035 target for net zero electricity generation. That is really just being discussed right now what that means and what the net part is. But again, we have a lot of the resources of put my Western Canadian hat on. We do have a lot of the wind and solar resources that are needed. And it's a matter of really, how do we build those out? How do we build out the transmission lines that we need? How can we, same story, I think down in the US, how do we better partner with our neighboring provinces like BC to use big hydro storage facilities as a tool to integrate more variable renewables. But I think a lot of the fundamentals are there. And it's a matter of actually just getting it done. Mm-hmm. So let's return to the topic of carbon pricing. In 2019, Canada implemented a nationwide carbon pricing scheme, only instead of a single nationwide carbon price, the federal government set a minimum national benchmark that all systems must meet, and then it lets the provinces and the territories either use the federal benchmark or design their own pricing systems tailored to local needs. And if they fail to design their own, then they default to the federal pricing system. So can you explain a bit more about how this scheme works? Yeah, so it's a great example of federalism in action. So the federal government is trying to walk a fine line of wanting to have a policy that covers all of Canada, wanting to allow for provinces to have some flexibility to design the systems that work for their unique footprint. And again, as I mentioned before, it's very different when you're thinking about the electricity sector, if you're in a province that has historically built a lot of coal and then gas, or you're one that has 100% hydro, of course, there are real differences there. And then also trying to help provinces and territories that that are smaller and that don't necessarily have the administrative capacity to undertake designing a carbon pricing system. And so you end up with this kind of backstop approach where basically, as you said, the federal government puts out a set of rules about carbon pricing, provincial and territories can define their own rules, and then the federal government determines if they are so-called equivalent, if they pass an equivalency test. And if they do, then the provincial rules reign supreme. And if they don't, then there is this backstop that comes in. And in some cases, some provincial governments have just opted into the backstop where they basically say, we're not against doing this. We just want to have you help us design it because that's too onerous for us to undertake. And so it was tested at the Supreme Court. There was number of provinces that brought a case saying that this was unconstitutional and that it was the federal government basically overreaching its powers to bring in this kind of regulation, but that was upheld. So carbon pricing, very much the law of the land now in Canada. Interestingly enough, I mean, it's actually been industrial carbon pricing has been the law of the land in Alberta for much longer. So our industrial Mm. carbon pricing system goes back to 2007. Now the price was relatively low, so it achieved some things, but it wasn't the same kind of comprehensive plan that we have in Canada. And the Canadian plan has really two parts. So we have Sometimes people talk about it as like a residential and commercial, but it's basically like a regulatory charge on fossil fuels like gasoline or natural gas. And you pay that at the pump or on your utility bill for natural gas. And then we have what's called the performance-based system for industry, and that's really a carbon pricing system. And then they are getting these so-called output-based 
allowances. And so effectively, what that is meant to do, according to The Economist, is basically you are preserving the marginal price on carbon while lowering the average price to protect emissions-intensive trade-exposed industries. And so basically how that works, so if you take a sector like, let's take oil and gas, for a barrel of oil, there is a performance level that's defined, a certain amount of emissions. And so every barrel of oil that you produce as a company, you get credits of a certain amount and you can use those against your carbon compliance. And so effectively, it's sort of free sort of offsets or free permits that it's paying for part of that, but it's based on your output. So it's it allows for flexibility if the output of a company ramps up or down, which is, I think, a good way to do policy if you're a big exporter of stuff because you're basically sort of disconnecting the carbon pricing policy from what's going on with demand for your product which you don't have control over. Mm-hmm. So then on the residential and commercial sides, there you have, as I said, this carbon price that you're paying at the pump or at home, but that money is rebated back to individuals and families and businesses. And the way that rebate is done, so if if the provinces have their own system, they get to be in charge of that and do that how they want. If they have opted into our backstop system, as the case of Alberta for our residential and commercial carbon pricing, then it's up to the federal government to deliver those credits back. And we definitely see a lot of misinformation when it comes to carbon pricing. So the way that the carbon pricing system works, you are getting that money rebated back. And actually, because you sort of end up with some of industry and commercial in there, individuals are typically up to a very high percentage are getting more back than they're paying. And that comes back through the tax system. But that's not well understood by most. So there's a lot of concern about affordability, which is I guess, unfortunate, it's understandable. I think it's a strategy that some political parties have taken to try to make this pricing system unpopular. And to some extent, it works. People are very concerned about affordability, even though they are actually getting back before before the tax is paid. So the payments come before the period of taxation. And there is targeted support to recognize So the difference, for example, in Alberta, if you live in a big city, you get slightly more if you live in rural Alberta where you might need to drive further, things like that. But that's not as well, I think, understood as it could be despite efforts to explain that system. But it is as soon as you start to try to explain to people, here's how carbon pricing works and here's why it works that I tax a gallon of gas or a liter of gas and then I give you money back. It's a lot easier for people to just understand there's a tax and that costs me money and that's bad. Mm hmm. Yeah. So what has been the effect of the nationwide price on carbon and how have different provinces fared given that they're using the money in different ways? So there's certainly some interesting examples where you can see really clearly behavioral change or changes within industry. And so the Alberta power sector is a great one, right? I mean, here you have a system that is designed to look at marginal prices and behave in response to them. And so you can see, I think, almost to the day, and one of my colleagues, Blake Schaefer, took a look at this in our power market here, you can see, you know, essentially to the day when this system was brought in that that kind of changed and the price increased, you see the switch from dispatching coal to gas because of the difference in cost, the carbon cost between those two fuels. So in some areas, it's very successful there. I think that there's still 
the price is $50 today that's gone up from like 20 to 30 when it was brought in and it's going to rise to 170 in 2030 not indexed to inflation I should say so that's a little bit lower than it sounds like but I think some of the big changes are still sort of to be seen although there is also some evidence that that some of the BC carbon price on individuals is also driving some behavior so there was a recent paper by Blake Schaefer and Nick Rivers that really looks at sort of the way in which some of that rebate money looks like it ended up going to the purchase of transit passes and a reduction in use of vehicles. So I think it's playing out sort of how it's supposed to. One of the biggest challenges that I think is coming up now on the industrial side is the certainty around that price. And so there's actually a lot of discussion about ways in which, whether it's through contracting, contracts or difference that could be offered by the government, that that may be still a missing piece to encourage some of the longer term investments that in principle you would make if you had certainty that the carbon price was rising and that the government has signaled that. But of course, there's always the uncertainty to do with changing governments. And so whereas the operational differences like the coal to gas switching, you can see work really well because that's a short term behavior. In my mind, that's still a little bit of a missing piece, but one that could in principle be solved. And then I think especially with a signal that it's going to rise to $170, would really start to drive a lot of more investment behavior in the near term. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I'm glad that we took all this time to talk about the fossil fuel sector in Canada and Alberta specifically, because that really is the main story. But obviously, this all has a limited life ahead of it. I mean, at some point, Alberta and every other fossil fuel province, using the term province loosely, (laughs) around the world needs to have a way to just transition to renewables or some other clean source. So let's talk about those. What are the opportunities for Alberta in terms of renewable resources? And is Alberta looking to develop its comparatively good wind and solar resources? So wind and solar is one of the best opportunities for renewable resources in Alberta, especially in the near term. And there has been a lot of progress made on developing out those resources. And a lot of what we're seeing recently, so Alberta actually was one of the first provinces in Canada to start really installing wind, if you go back a decade plus. And then not a lot happened for a while in the the interim. A lot of uh, cogeneration got built also, not to tie it back to the oil sands, but that actually also we see there was a big push of of cogeneration in those facilities. They're generating all this heat. And so there's a big piece that sort of makes Alberta's electricity sector a little bit unique compared to some other regions. But recently, we had a government program, the Alberta Renewable Energy Program, which was basically what the Alberta Electricity System Operator, the ASO, did in order to meet Alberta government at the time, brought in legislation, a 30% renewable energy target in Alberta by 2030. That target is actually still on the books. It was not changed by the by the subsequent government, although it's not much discussed, but technically it's still a law of the land. And so the ASO designed a renewable energy procurement to sort of help Alberta get there. And that was a contract for difference. Alberta has a a fully deregulated electricity system, another way in which we are like, I guess, the Texas of Canada. Mm. And so what the Alberta system operator did was set up a procurement 
for chunks of renewable energy, for contracts for difference. So basically guaranteed a certain price in the Alberta market and then purchasing the power and the environmental attributes on behalf of the government. And I think it's fair to say that that was pretty wildly successful when it was first brought in and talked about. People, including the ASO's own projections, but also, you know, what you read in the newspaper, were expecting to see prices in the, like, $80 range, Canadian, but $80 per megawatt hour. So the first round, I was actually in the room when the prices were announced for the first round. And, you know, there people always make these comments, but there literally was a gasp in the room <laughs> when the prices came in below $40 a megawatt hour. Yeah. And the gasp is a little funny because actually if you convert that $40 a megawatt hour in Canadian and add back in the value of the PTC, you get something that's not wildly different from PPA prices that were common in the U.S. at the time. Mm. So I would say it was successful. It wasn't somehow more successful than other places with similar wind resources, but it really ultimately, I think, helped to kickstart what we see now is quite a robust corporate and institutional power purchase agreement market in Alberta. And full disclosure, I was one of the people that helped to set up Business Renewable Center Canada, which is the Canadian counterpart to to BRC, which became Reba. But we just saw actually earlier this year, Alberta hit two gigawatts of renewable energy corporate PPAs. And this is in a market that has about 17 gigawatts of installed generation in the span of just a few years. So I think it's fair to say that renewable energy build out in Alberta is taking off in a major way. We do have quite good wind resources. We actually also have very good solar resources for where we are. We're one of the sunniest places in in Canada and certainly much sunnier than what you would find at a similar latitude in, in Europe. So also seeing a lot of solar starting to come online too. But we're starting from a relatively low base of installed capacity of renewables. And so I think we still have quite a long runway, although we are going to have to at some point start to confront the need for more transmission lines, both in the province just to connect more renewables, but then also starting to think about having a more robust interconnection with some of our neighboring provinces. All right. Well, just to wrap up then, what about geothermal energy? There's got to be potential there. And I know you co-authored a report in 2017 for Pembina Institute on Alberta's geothermal potential. So can you share what you found? Yeah. So geothermal is one of the things that people have loved to talk about for years in Alberta. I think part of that is just on the surface of like, we drill holes in the ground and you need to drill holes in the ground for geothermal. And so we could do that. There's been times where actually geothermal has been of great interest for the oil sands industry as a potential source of lower carbon source of heat and power. I would say that's actually maybe a little bit less discussed these days. There's more excitement around SMRs for source of power up north, but it's certainly something that has been around for a long time. And so we looked into what is the barriers, how much is there these overlaps through this lens of like these different key processes. So, you know, knowledge development, creating markets, mobilizing the financial resources and creating some kind of political legitimacy. And so, as I mentioned, there is a lot of overlap. So the the workers and businesses have these similar skills. When you look at things like drilling, we have a pretty good understanding of the subsurface in Alberta. And there is sort of a door that people can go to in the regulatory system to at least start talking about the idea of geothermal development. However, we actually have 
pretty little amount of geothermal development in Alberta. There's a little bit in Saskatchewan, but we, I would say, trail behind somewhere like California that has seen more of it happen. And one of the challenges there, so there's a few different things that we identified. One of them is the boom-bust nature of the oil and gas industry, where when oil and gas is booming, there's all this demand for workers and for capital into that sector. And it's hard for the geothermal industry to compete with that because you're talking about returns from an electricity sector competing with returns from the oil and gas sector. And we know who's going to win that in times of high oil prices. And then in times of low oil prices, you face the similar problem that there's just like not enough money to go around, both from the private sector, but also, I guess we didn't talk about the fact that Alberta's government is very dependent on resource royalties as a source of funding. And so we have a lot of challenges supporting programs in the province when oil prices are low, because that is a real direct significant hint to our budget here. And so there's sort of like we were talking about earlier, that there's no good time to clean up the wells. We have also faced this phenomenon that there's no good time to start a geothermal industry. <laughs> And then there's a sort of other challenges that places have faced as well, too, which is the lack of a regulatory structure. So not having clarity about what the royalty regime would look like. Not that it would be problematic necessarily, but of course, if you just don't know what that is, it doesn't work. And then challenges, although there is a lot of overlap between the development of a project, there, of course, are pretty significant differences but in the operation of companies between those two sectors. And so there's some missing gaps there. Mm. And there has been efforts made in recent time to address some of those gaps. So some of the regulatory structures have been addressed. There has been some support put into the sector. But I think fundamentally now there's also a challenge of because we have not developed the wind and solar resources as much as, you know, th there's still a runway to develop out wind and solar and even a pretty significant runway before the dispatchable power that geothermal can provide really becomes valuable. I think we're still in the early days of kind of seeing that value versus a place that has more variable renewables on the grid already. So you know, I think we will get there. But the value that geothermal has to bring to the electricity sector today is just a value that it doesn't need. And so therefore, the market isn't there for it yet. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I mean, I think ultimately there's a huge opportunity for geothermal. I don't see any fundamental reason why it can't ultimately produce enough revenue to throw off the kinds of royalties that can run a government and provide an essential grid service and do all the things that our other fuels can do. But it is still a pretty young industry, really. So with a lot of potential, by the way, both in Alberta and many other places in North America and around the world. Well, I think we can leave it there. Thank you so much, Sarah, for taking the time to be on the show and share what you know. And I really enjoyed finally having you on the show after as long as we've known each other. And I'm glad that we can sort of jointly share this podcast with our respective audiences. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's 
it's such an interesting place to be in Canada and frankly, I think in the world to to work on these questions no doubt. from what you called, I think rightly, the seat of the oil and gas industry in Alberta. And it's sometimes it's frustrating in some ways, but I think it's also there's a lot to learn from really confronting the challenges of transition face to face and dealing with the human side of the things that are not so easy to just wave away and say, oh, well, you know, people will find new jobs or people can move. So I think that Canada has some interesting lessons that can hopefully bring to other places. For sure. Well, all right. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. That was Sarah Hastings-Simon speaking with us from Calgary. In terms of energy output, Canada may be best known for its oil and gas, but it's a big country rich in all sorts of resources, and I hope today's discussion shed a little light on the many ways that it can continue to be an important energy producer throughout the energy transition and execute its own transition away from fossil fuels if it can manage its domestic politics where the oil and gas industry continues to exert a great deal of influence. In that sense, Canada and the U.S. have a lot in common, and it's probably not much of a stretch to suggest that we will succeed or fail at our respective transitions together. As ever, I think both countries face essentially the same challenge. Where you stand depends on where you sit. So transitioning successfully will depend heavily on capitalizing on the economic benefits of renewables on both sides of the border. As long as individuals and industry can find a way to profit from the energy transition, it can be a success. And there's a great deal that both countries can do to secure that future mutually. One area to keep an eye on as a bellwether for such cooperation is in the transmission lines exporting abundant Canadian hydropower to the U.S., and we'll be discussing that in more detail in an upcoming episode. To be sure, Alberta is already making good progress. According to the Alberta Electric System Operator, 14% of the province's electricity generation in 2020 was from renewable energy sources such as wind, hydro, and solar. The Canada Energy Regulator forecasts that the total capacity of renewable energy sources in Alberta will reach 26% by 2023, and that the province will add 1.2 gigawatts of solar capacity by then. The provincial government's Renewable Electricity Act has a legislated target to get 15% of its electricity from renewable energy sources by 2023 and 30% by 2030. For now, I remain hopeful that Alberta, and Canada more broadly, can execute a successful and speedy energy transition while finding new ways to keep the workers of its fossil fuel industries employed and maintaining social cohesion. It's a tall order, but I believe it can be done. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to data compiled by the Business Renewables Center, or BRC, corporations such as Amazon, TELUS, Starbucks, and the City of Edmonton have made more than $3.75 billion in new wind and solar energy investment in Alberta, creating nearly 4,500 jobs. According to the BRC, Alberta is now the wind and solar capital of Canada. In 2019, the BRC set a goal of securing 2 gigawatts of renewables in the province by 2025, but it hit that target in the first few months of 2022. Amazon alone bought most of the output from Canada's largest solar farm in June 2021, the 465-megawatt, $700 million Traverse Solar Farm southeast of Calgary. Alberta has a unique deregulated electricity market, which enables companies to buy power directly from power producers, encouraging companies like Amazon to make direct purchases in the province. In 2015, Alberta pledged to phase out its coal plants, which at the time provided about half its power by 2030. But now it looks like that target will actually be achieved in 2023. Item 2. 
Alberta has extended a rebate program through the end of the year that will provide relief for consumers struggling to pay high utility bills due to the high price of natural gas. Consumers who consumed electricity within the past calendar year will automatically receive credits of $50 a month on their bills. The program is expected to cost the Alberta government $600 million. A separate relief program will run from October 2022 to March 2023 and give consumers rebates on natural gas when its prices exceed $6.50 per gigajoule. And for those of you who might not think in terms of gigajoules, one gigajoule is roughly equivalent to 1 million BTU. Item 3. According to data compiled by Bloomberg NEF's Nat Bullard from BP's annual statistical review of world energy, renewables now provide 13% of global electricity generation. Over the past 35 years, renewables have largely displaced oil and nuclear power, while the global share of coal-fired generation held flat at around 36% and gas-fired generation grew to 23%. Renewables passed 10% of generation in 2019 and have gained nearly 1% of market share every year since then. Wind and solar now generate more power than nuclear globally, despite China building new reactors. China is now the largest importer of liquefied natural gas, or LNG, globally, having surpassed the longtime LNG import leader, Japan, and Europe in 2021. But as of 2021, China also generated more renewable electricity than Europe or the U.S., adding almost 290 terawatt hours of renewable electricity in 2021 alone. That's roughly as much renewable electricity as was generated by Japan and India combined, or about as much electricity as the UK consumed in total. Coal consumption rebounded sharply in 2021, approaching its previous peak level set in 2013. Still, renewable generation has been growing at 15% per year on average for the past decade, as compared with just one-tenth of 1% for coal and 2.2% for gas. On current trends, renewables will continue to dominate global electricity consumption growth. Item 4. Faced with worrying challenges to its power grid, including an ongoing drought that has reduced hydropower output, high demand from air conditioning due to excessive heat, wildfire risk forcing transmission lines to shut down, and delays in renewables projects due to supply chain problems and the solar trade dispute with China, California has been taking aggressive measures to maintain its grid reliability. On June 30th, California Assembly Bill 205 was signed into law, granting the Department of Water Resources the authority to sidestep certain environmental reviews and approvals and finance or buy power from any generator to prevent blackouts, including battery storage systems, diesel backup generators, and several natural gas-fired power plants that were due to retire by now. It also earmarked $2.2 billion in the state budget for a so-called Strategic Electricity Reliability Reserve that would extend the life of existing generation facilities, secure new emergency and temporary power, and develop new clean generation facilities during extreme climate events. The bill also includes $200 million for programs that pay consumers for reducing their electricity consumption when the grid is stressed. Listeners may recall that we discussed that concept with California wholesale power market architect Lorenzo Kristov in episode 150. 
A separate provision would allow companies building solar farms, wind turbines, lithium-ion batteries, and grid interconnections to seek expedited approval directly from the California Energy Commission without the customary approvals by county governments. State officials are still required to conduct environmental reviews of the projects and formally approve or deny them within nine months. Any legal challenges to project approvals would need to be resolved by state courts within another nine months. Local governments objected to the provision, saying that it usurps local control over project siting. But local governments have at times been a serious obstacle to the energy transition, with San Bernardino County supervisors banning solar and wind farms on more than one million acres in 2019, and Shasta County supervisors set to vote in July on a wind farm moratorium. Shasta and Humboldt counties have both rejected proposed wind farms in recent years, an increasingly common occurrence across the western U.S. as local residents raise concerns about environmental damage and diminished views. The bill also sets aside $75 million to help keep the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant operating past its scheduled closure in 2025. The state also asked for and received a 75-day extension to apply for federal funds to keep the plant operating and asked the Department of Energy to modify the criteria for the grants in order to make Diablo Canyon eligible. And finally, item 5. Japan has successfully tested a new type of subsea turbine that harnesses the energy from deep ocean currents. The giant machine resembles an airplane with two counter-rotating turbine fans in place of jets and a central fuselage housing a buoyancy adjustment system. Called Kairu, the 330-ton prototype is designed to be anchored to the seafloor at a depth of 30 to 50 meters, or 100 to 160 feet. Testing of the prototype was completed in February after a three-and-a-half-year-long demonstration study of the technology. The tests proved the prototype could generate the expected 100 kilowatts of stable power. The manufacturer, IHI Corp., now plans to scale up to a full 2-megawatt system that could be in commercial operation in the 2030s or later. In commercial production, the plan is to site the turbines in the Kuroshio Current, one of the world's strongest, which runs along Japan's eastern coast and transmit the power via seabed cables. Deep ocean currents are not particularly strong. The Kuroshio Current flows at 1 to 1.5 meters per second, compared with 3 meters per second for some tidal systems. However, ocean currents are very stable, with little fluctuation in speed or direction, giving them a capacity factor of 50 to 70 percent. That would exceed even the capacity factors of the biggest offshore wind farms, and compares with around 29 percent for onshore wind and 15 percent for solar. Harvesting power from ocean currents could be uniquely well-suited to Japan, which does not have as good a wind resource as Europe. Japan's new energy and industrial technology development organization estimates the Kuroshio current could potentially generate as much as 200 gigawatts, about 60% of Japan's present generation capacity. Still, the technology faces major engineering challenges to build a system robust enough to withstand the hostile conditions of deep ocean currents and to reduce maintenance costs. As we discussed in episode 155 on marine energy, Japan is exploring various ways of harnessing energy from the sea, including tidal and wave power and ocean thermal energy conversion, or OTEC. A 100-kilowatt OTEC demonstration facility in Okinawa commenced in April, and a feasibility test will be undertaken this year to produce one megawatt of tidal power around the Goto Islands in the East China Sea. The government is also seeking to speed up development of offshore wind. Ocean Energy Systems, an intergovernmental collaboration established by the International Energy Agency, sees the potential to deploy more than 300 gigawatts of ocean energy globally by 2050.
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. XE Network.